Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. The first case of COVID-19 in the U.S. was reported in January of 2020. By February, community transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in the United States was occurring. A year later, over 100 million patients have contracted COVID around the world, and ICUs everywhere have been facing enormous strain from an unprecedented number of patients with respiratory failure. Today's episode of the podcast, we will explore the use of extracorporeal life support in the form of ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, for the treatment of the sickest patients with COVID-19-induced ARDS. Our guest is Dr. Janelle Badulak. Dr. Badulak is an emergency physician and intensivist caring for patients in the emergency department, cardiothoracic intensive care unit, medical intensive care unit, and trauma intensive care unit at the University of Washington Medical Center and Harborview Medical Center. She's a clinician educator who specializes in curriculum development and assessment with a focus on graduate medical education and extracorporeal life support and extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Dr. Badalak works closely with the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, ELSO, on the ECMO-Ed Task Force, contributing to development of an international standardized ECMO curriculum. She also serves as the Director of ECMO Education for the University of Washington and Harborview Medical Centers. Janelle, welcome to Critical Matters. Ah, thank you very much for having me. Very excited to talk about uh, to talk with you today about obviously a, a very important topic that we that I know you're very passionate about. And uh, we were talking uh, before we started recording about ECMO pre-COVID, but also what it means for COVID and what we've learned. So hopefully we can uh, really address a lot of the clinical uh, important points that are relevant to clinicians practicing at the bedside, both in places that do ECMO and places that may not, and, and, and identifying those patients and when they should be referred. So maybe we could start with a very basic um, definition or kind of a explanation of the types of ECMO that have been utilized for COVID-19 and uh, move into what we've learned with the ELSO registry on COVID-19 specifically. Yeah, sounds great. So um, the two main configurations for ECMO are VA or venoarterial and VV or venovenous. And overwhelmingly, more than 90% of cases we've been using VV or venovenous ECMO for uh, supporting patients with COVID with severe respiratory failure. So essentially just pulmonary bypass where we drain blood from the central venous system pump it through a membrane lung, removing CO2 and oxygenating the blood, and then pumping it back into the central venous system, essentially placing a membrane lung in series with or before the native lung. Um, there is a minority of, there are no, uh, like a small number of patients who um, have COVID-19 that have cardiopulmonary failure. So they have some form of cardiogenic or obstructive shock. This seems to be patients with massive PE or potentially a stress cardiomyopathy or um, a frank myocarditis, potentially even also an acute coronary syndrome related to embolic phenomena or maybe hypercoagulability is still all fairly poorly understood. Um, however, um, these patients um, can be supported on venoarterial ECMO where we're draining that blood from the central venous system 
and then pumping it back into the arterial system, bypassing both the heart and the lungs. So essentially creating dual circulations um, that are in parallel. Excellent. And it's very interesting that with ECMO, we've seen a, a, a similar evolution through the pandemic where early reports suggested that the mortality was exceedingly high and made people second think what we should be doing. Very similar to what happened with ICU, but as we really gained experience, understood what we were dealing with, and the numbers started increasing, it does seem that now we have a different perspective of what the, the real outcomes of these patients are. As far as I understand, ELSO has a registry for ECMO patients in COVID-19, and last I checked, over 3,000 patients have had ECMO runs with COVID-19 in the United States. Could you comment on that a little bit in terms of general findings to date with uh, ECMO and COVID-19 specifically? Yeah, um, we've been really looking forward to this data that came out a couple of months ago, published in The Lancet, um, to see what is the mortality for patients undergoing ECMO at experienced high volume ECMO centers and um, centers also that maybe aren't getting absolutely crushed with high volumes of COVID. I think that's part of the problem is initially mortality is quite high if centers that maybe don't have as many ECMO runs or are being totally overwhelmed with a totally unknown virus, it's hard for you to maintain the standard of care um, when your volumes and your unknowns are unprecedented. So once we kind of, like you said, moved a little bit further into the disease and started to understand that, hey, it's kind of just another respiratory virus, um, potentially higher mortality, but treat it the same way that we know how to treat ARDS, then we started seeing that uh, mortality for these patients is quite similar to pre-COVID ARDS mortality, or at least all comers for BB ECMO. So in general, the ELSO registry gathers data from all ELSO centers. So ECMO centers around the world who join ELSO then contribute their data. Um, and they've been collecting data for decades. Um, in general, VV ECMO survival, um, so for respiratory failure of all different types, not just ARDS, survival is about 65%. Um, this is kind of like pre-pandemic um, historical survival. Um, and then what we saw in the paper um, by Barrow in The Lancet was that survival was about the same, quite similar. We also saw um, a nice multi-center uh, French study uh, that was just published just before the ELSO registry that uh, showed about a similar mortality as well. And then we also have the ELSO or the Euro ELSO survey, which is um, a group of, I think it's about a hundred and, what, well, no, many, couple hundred, <laughs> a couple hundred uh, ECMO centers in Europe uh, collecting data, looking at their mortality, um, which was just recently published as well. Um, it seems like the mortality may be increasing with time. Um, and I wonder, we all kind of speculate about this. Is it that people now who are on ECMO are sort of failing the other therapies that we didn't use before, like we didn't use high flow, we weren't using steroids. So now if patients are severe enough to require ECMO, maybe they're just way sicker. But in general, like the big take home point is that yes, patients do have comparable survival to other causes of ARDS when they have COVID. So we should basically use probably the same selection criteria. Absolutely. And obviously the devil is always in the selecting the right patient, but the important lessons at least uh, from what I've seen related to ECMO and COVID, 
relate to the mortality is not 100%. So there's actually a large number of patients, like you said, the majority of patients when selected appropriately that can survive. It also, I think, highlights that this data is based out of centers that are highly motivated, that do a lot of ECMO. So they're set up for ECMO. And like you said, probably speaks to, to the nature of a, a high resource uh, intensive um, ther therapy like ECMO is not something that you might be able to do when your ICU capacity is exceeded with a surge of patients or you've not, you haven't done it before in terms of having the right resources. So that also, I believe, is a, an important aspect of ECMO and COVID during a pandemic, right? Right. And this is something that, um, you know, we actually um, coming shortly, hopefully within the next week or two, have some updated uh, guidelines for COVID um, coming from ELSO um, and kind of navigating this, like who should, where's the best, how is it, what's the best method to take care of our patients? How do we get the most people to survive with the resources that we have and how do we work together to do that? Um, we do know that there probably is an economy of scale and a um, volume outcomes relationship um, where if you have a higher volume, so more than 30 ECMO runs a year, your outcomes are seem like they are better. Um, and so uh, COVID would be no exception to that. So trying to concentrate ECMO volumes at ECMO centers um, with just to try to concentrate that expertise, it makes sense, right? And so figuring out how to create hub and spoke networks where um, referring facilities know who to call and kind of when to send their patients to an ECMO center seems like the best way for all of us to work together to try to save as many lives as we can. Um, in some areas, uh, they have created newer ECMO centers um, it, to meet the need of more patients that are ECMO candidates. Uh, however, they've done this in a really uh, deliberate fashion with close mentorship from an established ECMO center. So it's not creating from the ground up a brand new center. It's essentially a branch of a big center that's mentoring a new physical location. And that seems like they've had some success. There have been a couple of different programs in the Middle East who've done this. And they've exemplified that if you're going to create a new ECMO center, it really it just doesn't make sense in the middle of a pandemic or any time just to sprout a new program because there's the learning curve is too steep and we it doesn't really make sense to reinvent the wheel. So do it with another established program to help um, make sure that you hit the ground running with really good outcomes and that patients don't suffer in the meantime while you're just trying to figure things out. A great point that was done by one of our previous guests was that if you don't do it in peacetime, don't start doing it in, in the middle of the war, right? I mean, it's just not the right time to, to start something that's so complex. On the other hand, Janelle, I think that we are seeing that the technology and the ability of us to provide ECMO continues to evolve rapidly. So also I would imagine that even though a hub and spoke model makes a lot of sense now, as we move forward, those hubs will probably increase in size, right? There'll be more and more of them. Probably. and and it. You know, it also really depends on what is the future of ECMO? What is the role of ECMO in critical care? When do we use it? And right now it's kind of this, um, for better or worse, a bit of a salvage technology or rescue. We need to learn more about the technology and again, think about our approach to ARDS 
always thinking of how can we make things better for patients and where does ECMO fit into the ARDS algorithm. We really don't know. There's a lot of opportunity for research and that is definitely one of the challenges of spending a lot of time caring for ECMO patients while we're, we have technology and research trying to catch up to technology and to sort out like when and whom should we use this. And if our research tells us that maybe this should be more widespread, then it makes sense for this to kind of gradually move into more intensive care units if that's if it's a useful technology and also if we're able to sort of scale up its use. Right now it's fairly resource intensive and it is fairly expensive. Um, and there are still some risks, uh, mostly around bleeding and complications in the hematologic inflammatory system. So I think once we kind of learn more about getting over some of the hurdles like that have already been really um, a lot of incredible strides have been made from the 70s and 80s with membrane like silicone membrane lung oxygenators to now our polymethylpentene oxygenators that work really really well and that we're able to have like uh, you know bioline and phosphorylcholine and heparin line circuits that we don't need to use as much anticoagulation essentially lots of different um, moves forward have been made in technology and then once we can basically figure out how to use this technology how to do it really really well then study it and figure out what the role of ECMO is I, I wonder if it will um, start to become a really central role in intensive care and then we would expect it after that of course to spread more widely but hopefully we do it in a really um, deliberate fashion because the worst thing that could happen is we have a new sort of disruptive technology that spreads too quickly and we hurt people because we don't know how best to, when we should use it or, or shouldn't. Agree. And obviously uh, one of the most difficult aspects of ECMO, even though it's been along, uh, around for, for decades, has been to really study it in a rigorous way for many challenges uh, and figure out really what the right patient, what the right timing is. But uh, without going into, into that rabbit hole, why don't we talk initially about what are the commonly accepted indications for ECMO and COVID-19 and contraindications and start with indications probably. Um, yeah, so indications should be the same for pretty much any patient uh, when you're considering for ECMO. So we've really recognized that you really you don't want to necessarily wait longer or um, have a patient in more extremis before considering ECMO because you're sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that outcomes will be worse. So um, the what, what we think of are generally like evolving criteria for for VV ECMO selection, or I'll focus mostly on VV ECMO since this is most relevant for COVID-19. Um, are seeming to be more, more and more similar to the EOLIA criteria. So the um, RCT based in uh, France, looking at early use of ECMO for ARDS, essentially, should we be using ECMO as a way sort of to mitigate some lung injury if we are unable to safely ventilate people with, um, without avoiding volutrauma and barotrauma and high mechanical power um, with the mechanical ventilator? Um, versus uh, not offering ECMO. But it's very hard to study <laughs> ECMO when you um, when it's when many people consider it to be unethical to withhold. So there's a ton of crossover, as many of you guys know, in that study. 
Um, so the criteria from for, for Eolia are fairly widely being adapted, but again, where we don't know if these are the right criteria and we still have a lot of work to do to, to really fine tune this. But at this point, it seems like patients should go on ECMO if they have a, a low P to F despite um, traditional less invasive therapies for hypoxemia. So P to F probably calling for a referral with a P to F less than 100 to put the patient on an ECMO center's radi uh, uh, radar. And then we're generally cannulating patients if they have a P to F of less than 80 for more than like six hours, so sustained, or maybe less than 50 for more than three hours. So patients who are just frankly hypoxemic that we're unable to tune up and sort of rescue. Proning seems to be probably the most important intervention that we really don't cannulate anyone unless they've failed a trial of proning because um, patients can respond really beautifully to proning and that is kind of a no-lose situation to prone someone. Um, and the role for neuromuscular blockade um, is a little bit hard to understand at this point. Some trials saying do it, some no. Um, and then, of course, inhaled pulmonary artery vasodilators are a bit of a band-aid, so they may help you transport a patient or get them through a cannulation, but I'm not sure that layering that on um, to make a patient's P to F ratio look better is necessarily the right thing to do. As we know, inhaled pulmonary artery vasodilators don't seem to improve mortality, just the numbers. Um, and then, so that's the P to F ratio, and then tightly linked with that would be your um, ability to ventilate the patient. So um, ARDSnet recommendations keeping the plateau pressure less than 32 um, and maybe considering ECMO if you're unable to maintain a pH uh, above 7.25. So I think one of the biggest pitfalls that people run into is that they are liberating the tidal volumes and accepting a higher plateau pressure as the original ARDSnet recommendations from over 20 years ago recommended. Um, and uh, ECMO centers would say, hey, um, let's, let's not, for lack of a better word, trash the lungs um, with the mechanical ventilator because um, if we try to do ECMO after that and the lungs are damaged with COVID and ventilator-induced lung injury, um, even buying time on ECMO won't save them. Excellent. So before we go into the contraindications, you know, I think it's worth kind of um, re-emphasizing a couple of points that you made that I think are critical for, for our listeners. First is that obviously this is for severe ARDS. So if the P to F ratio is not below 150, ECMO's probably not uh, right now, at least in your conversation initially. But when it goes below 100, after optimization, especially, or, or as you're trying to optimize somebody, getting in contact with the ECMO team, where it's at your institution or an outside institution, is probably the right thing to, to at least start. And the things that you would do to optimize it, everybody agrees on, would be prone positioning. Um, some things that people probably go back and forth would be neuromuscular blockade, higher PEEP strategies. And like you said, some people would recommend that you consider inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, but those obviously are not usually associated with improved mortality and might be more of a bridge as you get them cannulated or you get them to ECMO. And for the criteria that you mentioned, really there's uh, three important criteria that I think people can, can, can remember, which are a PDF ratio below 80 for six hours or more, a PDF ratio below 50 for three hours or more, and uh, for the ventilation aspect, when your pH is below 7.25 with the PCO2 equal or greater than 60 for six hours. 
all of these after you've optimized your ARDS net and lung protective strategies, correct? Correct. And I think the, the last point is probably one of the most important is to, to not liberate tidal volumes and to not accept a higher plateau pressure in order to um, keep the pH and the hemodynamically stable uh, <laughs> high enough for, to avoid terrible shock and RV failure or myocardial dysfunction. Because that's when we get the, I think the most common like too late referrals would be a patient who's been exposed to injurious mechanical ventilator settings and those patients do pretty terribly. Excellent. Now, a more difficult in terms of having precise uh, criteria, but I think obviously still very relevant to discuss are the contraindications for, for ECMO. Could you talk to those, especially specifically for COVID? Yeah, so this is a really tough area. Um, and uh, I've been, I've learned a lot from our ethicists <laughs> um, as we engage them uh, in all of these discussions for when we have a limited resource that we've never really had to decline patients because we didn't have capacity before, um, how do we do that? So if we, you know, like many places have had to ask this question for things that come before ECMO, like ICU space because of a limitation of a physical space or nurse or respiratory therapist, or maybe mechanical ventilators, or at least the good kind, the ones that are actually ICU mechanical ventilators. So um, the ECMO community is um, no different. And uh, this is really tricky for us to sort through what are the contraindications. And in general, when you're thinking about contraindications, you want to try to select patients that are most likely to survive and are um, like, if, if they, that they're likely to make it through an ECMO run. So they have to have the physical fitness to be able to do that. And the COVID ECMO runs are longer than the pre-COVID runs. So on, on average or median and mean seem to be somewhere between 11 and 30 days for COVID where um, pre-COVID pre is somewhere more around seven to 11 days. Um, so significantly longer time, um, meaning that you know patients who may have been able to survive a shorter ECMO run without COVID, I'm not sure they'll be able to survive an ECMO run with COVID. But again, all of, most all of our data are observational, which uh, which leads to significant limitations. Yeah. So we really don't know who we should exclude. But what we try to do is use data from um, uh, some of the like mortality prediction tools to just get a general idea of maybe which patients are less likely to survive and then restrict ECMO use when we're running out of ECMO capacity um, to just to the patients that maybe lack some of those comorbidities. In general though, the only real contraindication to a patient going on ECMO is that you don't have an exit strategy. Right, so a patient that you're putting them on VV ECMO or VA ECMO, and you don't anticipate recovery, and the patient is not a transplant or durable device candidate. That's a clear contraindication because ECMO can't be a bridge to nowhere, <laughs> or ideally not. Yeah, and and it seems that when you look at the at the Lancet data from the registry, some of the independent risk factors with higher mortality were obviously higher age. So in some places that might be a consideration immunocompromised state, people, like you said, who had chronic respiratory disease at baseline, which probably leads to that exit strategy impl implications. And also, I mean, other organ failures um, obviously contributed to that. So those are all things that people should consider. And it seems like the, the hard part is that you're trying to find patients who are 
sick enough that without ECMO, ECMO they won't survive, but that have a chance to survive, right? So exactly. you have to find them at the right spot. And that has been, I think, kind of like the, the holy grail in terms of identifying the right population. Yeah, it really is the biggest challenge because you'll look at a patient and, you know, I run into this all the time, way more often than I wish that I did. But you, you look at a patient and you see her trajectory is headed in the wrong direction. But say she hasn't been intubated for a very long time. One of the things we should probably talk about is duration of mechanical ventilation. Don't let me forget about that because that's, a, that's an important one. Um, but anyway, patient is not doing very well. She hasn't been mechanically ventilated for that long. And you're trying to sort of, you wish you had a crystal ball to figure out which direction is she going to go. Yeah. If you put her on ECMO now, you run the risk, you know, of giving her an ECMO run that she didn't need. Well, um, what's the risk benefit ratio for that? She could potentially get hurt from ECMO. But if I wait longer and keep her on mechanical ventilation, she continues to decline and I wait too long, then maybe she's been exposed to mechanical ventilation for too long. We think there seems to be some kind of uh, dose harm relationship with time on mechanical ventilation because patients just don't survive ECMO if they've been exposed to a mechanical ventilator for um, a prolonged period of time, like more than seven to 10 days. So, you know, I, what drives us kind of crazy is just trying to predict the future to say, which direction is this patient going to go? Because it's very hard when then you're on day 10 or 12 and the patient, you know, you thought that they were going to get better and then all of a sudden she significantly declines and then you, you really regret having not put her on ECMO um, when you sort of had the chance earlier. Yeah. So I think that's what's so tricky about patient selection is putting these patients on an ECMO program's radar early is really helpful to understand a patient's trajectory because we don't know what the right thing to do is, but potentially it may make sense to put someone on if their trajectory is really concerning um, with knowing that you may expose them to an ECMO run they didn't need, but that may be the lesser of the two evils. Yeah, it, obviously in places that, that do ECMO very well, or if you have the capacity to do that, depending on what's going on, obviously with, with the number of patients, which we've seen with these surges can be quite a challenge. Let me give you two numbers, Janelle, that I want you to react to. These are numbers that kind of I have just from from what I've learned, I mean, kind of kept in mind. One is that it seems that the median time for initiation of ECMO in the ELSO COVID registry uh, for patients uh, is four days after initiation of mechanical ventilation. On the other hand, the other number I want to give you is seven. And it seems that when people are really over over seven days of mechanical ventilation, the odds of um, us being out of the window increase significantly. Are those, do you think, reference points that can be useful for clinicians? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that, you know, often what will, as we all know, in intensive care, when you intubate a patient, um, when they are failing high flow, for example, with ARDS, and they decompensate and they're quite hypoxemic at the beginning, we don't know which direction they're going to go. Then we quickly get them in the prone position or a muscular blockade, and then we kind of sit on them and try to sort out which direction are you going to go as we optimize PEEP as well, of course. Um, and then, um, you know, I think at that point, kind of once you get an idea of where is this person going to settle out and if they're really starting to improve, um, then you can, um, once, if they're really starting to improve, then kind of wait a little bit and figure out which direction they're going to go. 
Um, but if they're really not improving, um, yeah, I think like within the first couple of days, um, referring them to an ECMO center makes sense. And I, I can speak for our ECMO centers that we always appreciate early phone calls. Um, I think in general calling after, we sometimes get calls for patients who are on high flow um, pre-intubation, uh, it's just probably not as, um, like, we, we just don't know what direction they're going to go. In general, most centers, um, maybe with few exceptions, are really requesting that a patient fails mechanic invasive mechanical ventilation before utilizing ECMO. Um, so after patients been intubated, after they've really settled out in the ICU, just figure out which direction they're going to go. If it's really still concerning with a P to F less than 100, then I'd put that patient on an ECMO center's radar. And the seven-day mark, while that was kind of the that came up quite a bit for maybe the the outcomes are really pretty terrible after seven to ten days, um, and this is of course pre-COVID data. The 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 inflection point for um, well, I shouldn't say inflection point. The signal for harm really starts around th day three to four, um, where patients have worse outcomes. So of course, patients always have better outcomes if they're placed on ECMO earlier. But we don't really know why that is, right? Because it could be that we're exposing a lot of patients to ECMO runs that they didn't need because they were just less sick. Or is it because these patients are having, they're having better survival because they have a lower dose of um, basically mechanical power from um, positive pressure ventilation? Nobody knows, uh, but it is something certainly uh, worth considering. So a take home message would be that prior to optimizing what we know we can do for ARDS, including prone positioning, plus minus neuromuscular blockers, plus minus increasing PEEP, plus minus um, inhaled basal dilators, we really shouldn't be thinking of ECMO. So let's do that as, as soon as possible. And on the other hand, if somebody's been in the vent for a long period of time, or when you start to go after a week of mechanical ventilation, probably the window is too too late, especially in the current circumstances where we are strained for resources and trying to make the best decisions, right? Right. And that's the thing with ECMO is that we are strained for resources, but we want to select patients at the right time because if we wait too long, it doesn't make sense. Our outcomes are going to be worse. So we want to try to find those, the especially the very young, previously totally healthy, otherwise pretty physically fit that can make it through a really long ECMO run when they have a bad trajectory to get them on, uh, get them to an ECMO center or just consult over the phone. And often we'll follow them for a while over the phone together um, and stay updated. And then we can also plan the ideal time to retrieve or transport the patient. So, so let's dive into a little bit more of the management and especially talk about some important aspects uh, uh, dealing with a patient who now, uh, who you're going to start ECMO or is on ECMO. And uh, maybe we can start with the initiation and very briefly at a high level, uh, just uh, any cannulation comments or any specific issues that you've learned with, uh, with COVID-19 in this aspect. Yeah. So I think that Probably the biggest thing that I've that we've all learned is to stick to the standard of care. So whether that is how you cannulate your patient, how you manage your ARDS, what your nursing cares are, what how you run ECMO, just do it the same way you've always done it. And kind of at the beginning, maybe we would tweak it a little bit because we had a very unknown virus and didn't know how to stay safe. Um, but it's really important that we do critical care is a, you know, outcomes are a conglomeration of a ton of things, and ECMO is just one little technology piece. 
So if your physical therapy and OT and um, skin care are, you know, and nursing cares aren't up to par, your ECMO outcomes will significantly suffer. So just wanted to start off with that, um, that we really stick with the standard of care because we know how to keep our healthcare workers safe now, especially if you have, of course, adequate PPE. So um, the reason I started thinking about that is because we think about, okay, well, how did we start cannulating these patients? And in general, we do most of our BV cannulations at the bedside, which makes perfect sense. The patients are quite unstable. Um, we have access to um, whatever we need for imaging. And for the most part, most patients can be cannulated quite easily with uh, surface echo or potentially fluoroscopy. Um, rarely really needing TEE. Um, it's another tool that you can definitely use. Um, it just depends also on what your configuration is. Initially, we thought maybe these patients should only be supported with two cannulas to enable really high flow. But it seems like, and I've had a couple of patients supported with dual lumen single cannulas, and they do just fine. Um, potentially needing TEE for um, positioning of the return flow through the right atrium. But also this can be um, uh, accomplished pretty uh, effectively with fluoroscopy as well. So. Um, and then, of course, we also have a, a, a cohort of patients that were uh, or outcomes published from Chicago using the Protect Duo, which is drainage in the right atrium and return across the pulmonary valve so that you also have an RVAD, um, which is really very interesting to me. They have the lowest mortality of any cohort internationally. Interesting. And in terms of initial goals for, for the ECMO, in terms of oxygenation and ventilation, could you give us some general targets, just an overview? Yeah. So in general, um, you know, thinking of oxygenation, striving for greater than 88% at the beginning, certainly not wanting to sacrifice the lungs for that. So using lung protective ventilation or ultra lung protective ventilation, I almost... I kind of dislike this word lung protective ventilation because I think that's kind of an oxymoron. I don't think positive pressure is ever ever okay yeah. for the lungs. But anyway, trying not to damage the lungs while we buy more time. Um, and so many patients can, um, you can uh, get them above 88% with um, optimizing your blood flow. So increasing blood flow to the point of um, not causing high level hemolysis and shear stress and not having a high recirculation fraction if you're dealing with a two cannula uh, configuration. Um, and then if they are not able to achieve an 88% goal, of course, you don't want high FiO2, high pressures, high volumes with, the, um, with positive pressure ventilation, then kind of backing off on your oxygen saturation goal. And it seems like permissive hypoxemia is fairly well tolerated. At least we have some nice observational data that our colleagues in um, Sweden have published looking at permissive hyper hypo excuse me, hypoxemia and um, at neurocognitive outcomes at a year, it seems like patients are um, unaffected. But this was also a pretty young cohort. I think that their mean age is in the 30s. Um, so anyway, but looking at end organ function in particular, lactate or maybe troponin, because of course the coronary sinus saturation will be quite low. Um, and if a patient's hypoxemic and your drainage saturation is very low, um, making sure that we don't then end up with a higher risk of RV failure, which a lot of these patients are gonna be facing with high PVR with the ARDS. So mm -hmm. taking the saturation goal down to 85% is often tolerated, potentially down to 80%. It really just sort of depends on the patient, um, their age, their atherosclerotic disease, and um, how, how their uh, organs are able to function and whether or not you feel the need to transfuse up to a higher hemoglobin 
although we don't really know how useful that is. And it should be noted that most critical care literature looking at uh, DO2 to VO2 goals for um, blood transfusion in critical care, we don't seem to see improved outcomes with the, that goal-directed therapy. So it's something to note um, <laughs> and think about. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to poke on a couple of things uh, for more clarification for our listeners. So you talked about percent and when an intensivist hears 88 percent they're thinking pulse ox and really what you're talking about is the percent you're following in the serial abgs right or as long as your pulse oximetry is working so um the you know if you there you know i think it's always important to verify that your pulse oximeter is working especially with your patients who are with people of color because we've seen with a recent publication that um, pulse oximeters may be under-recognizing hypoxemia. Um, and so I don't think that necessarily we need to send blood every two hours. We can rely on the pulse oximeter for sure, but as long as it is actually tracking with the with the patient's um, SARO2 or the arterial oxygen saturation. Excellent. And can you give us a little bit more um, color uh, or explanation on recirculation? Something that I often hear people get confused about. Yeah, so recirculation is a phenomenon where you essentially have a garden hose return and a vacuum cleaner drainage, right? So you've, if you either, either have a single cannula that has two lumens in it that provide both drainage and, re and return, or if you have two different cannulas, most commonly the drainage cannula is in the femoral vein that goes up to the uh, the IVC and right atrium, and the return cannula is either in the contralateral femoral vein, returning to the right atrium, or in the internal jugular vein. And if those, if the um, the return flow gets sucked into the drainage cannula, um, then you'll basically be sort of excluding the patient from the ECMO um, affected blood, right? So the blood that's been oxygenated and CO2 is removed. So essentially then the circuit is just recirculating with itself and you're draining and returning to the central venous system and you're not allowing any of that blood to be entrained into the native heart and thus increasing the oxygen content of the pulmonary artery, which is how VV ECMO works. Um, and things, a number of things that can increase recirculation are going to be cannula position. So if you have two cannulas, if they're too close together um, so that the drainage and return ports are quite close to one another, that increases recirculation fraction. Also, if you have a malpositioned uh, dual lumen cannula um, and the return port is not facing across the tri tricuspid valve, um, then it can lead to essentially um, just sort of a, a hot tub kind of effect where return and drainage are happening in the same enclosed space in the cava. Um, and then at higher speeds, you'll have a much more negative drainage pressure. So that will, um, increase the tendency for the return uh, return blood to be directed into the drainage cannula. Um, if you think about it, if you had like a garden hose and it's on in a trickle and it's 10 centimeters away from a vacuum cleaner, not a lot of it's gonna get sucked into the vacuum cleaner, but you crank the hose up and it starts to, the, the, the fluid dynamics, the trajectory of that jet of blood is gonna get shot directly into the vacuum cleaner. That would be why with increasing flow, recirculation fraction increases. There's a couple of other smaller things that contribute to it, but those are the two main things. And what would be, Janelle, the, the finding at the bedside that the clinician 
would would say, hmm, I, I probably should check for recirculation. Yeah, so um, there's always going to be some degree of recirculation because we're draining and returning from the same space, the central venous system. Um, but if you have a patient with pathologic recirculation, that's the scenario where the patient is becoming more hypoxemic in the setting of a rising drainage saturation. So this can be manifest as some of the circuits uh, have continuous oximetry on the drainage cannula, and you might see the uh, uh, the drainage, the venous drainage saturation or the pre-oxygenator O2 saturation going up, and it's concerning if the patient's peripheral oxygen saturation is going down. Also, the both of the tubes will be bright red if you have pretty significant recirculation because all of that return blood that's quite oxygenated is also being drained out instead of the deoxygenated venous blood. Um, and then, so I think that uh, is, when you're evaluating your, your amount of recirculation, it really just depends on whether or not it's leading to pathology, so unacceptable uh, patient hypoxemia. Excellent. What do we do with a ventilator while somebody's on ECMO? That is such a good question. And if I could answer that question, I would be so happy. That's <laughs> <laughs> so a big question mark, right? So yes. let me rephrase it. What do you yeah. do with the ventilator when, when somebody's on ECMO? It's so hard. I feel very conflicted. There are two kind of different schools of thought. Both um, seem to have fairly similar outcomes. One would be ultra, ultra low, low tidal volume, low pressure, uh, where there's uh, almost apneic oxygenation happening um, and you're relying on ECMO to uh, with pulmonary bypass to do almost all the gas exchange. You're going to have to accept some permissive hypoxemia for this because it's hard to fully support someone on peripheral VA ECMO with, or VV ECMO for total, total lung bypass. Um, it's quite hard to do, especially because most of these patients have quite high cardiac output. And the idea behind increasing oxygenation with flow is that you're trying to keep up with the patient's cardiac output and try to make sure that the blood that's being entrained into the heart happens to be uh, conditioned by the ECMO membrane lung. <laughs> Oxygenated, CO2 has been removed. So um, other school of thought would be, okay, well, you know, we all agree that positive pressure is probably bad, more is bad. Every every piece of data that we have for 20 years is telling us that. Um, but maybe we shouldn't go all the way down on the ventilator. Maybe there's some benefit to maintaining some recruitment. Maybe that would help us shorten the ECMO run. And maybe the, the risks of the ECMO run outweigh the risks of ventilator-induced lung injury. I don't know. So other strategies might be to pursue a more of an open lung ventilation strategy like APRV or inverse ratio ventilation. Again, with really narrow driving pressures um, because we, you know, more and more observational data tell us that perhaps that actually tracks with mortality even better than a plateau pressure. Um, but suffice it to say, nobody knows. And um, there's uh, some health, exciting research looking at the ideal uh, mechanical ventilation strategy. What we use is moderate PEEPs, so PEEPs somewhere between 10 to 15, ideally set prior to going on ECMO, where looking at compliance curves and um, uh, looking at optimized PEEP to narrow driving pressure, 
um, and sticking with that peep if it's not excessive once we get cannulated and then just narrowing the driving pressure. And so we use, tend to use pressure control ventilation and use a driving pressure of about 10 um, to uh, like maintain some tidal volumes and a very low respiratory rate and try to prevent significant interaction with the ventilator causing significant transpulmonary pressures when the patient takes really um, forceful breaths in. We don't know, of course, we, the community, about patient-induced uh, lung injury on positive pressure, but I, 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 I suspect we will find that that is not good. <laughs> Excellent. What about uh, anticoagulation during ECMO runs? Obviously, we you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, the whole issue of anticoagulation and COVID-19 has been quite a... Uh, an area of interest and a, and a lot of emerging data, but even from the get-go, it was really felt that people on life support, such as ECMO, probably should be an anticoagulation for many reasons. Could you comment on that? Um, yeah, so that's another big question mark. Um, with more and more time, we've been able to demonstrate the safety of VV ECMO runs with smaller and smaller amounts of anticoagulation, because again, a lot of the the complications that we would have were related to bleeding. Um, and a lot of our, almost all the circuits are coated with something that's um, uh, anticoagulant. Um, so, you know, with COVID, the question comes up are, do these patients have a proclivity for clotting? Um, are these patients with RV failure having RV failure because of a PE? Or is this from like more of a microvascular problem that we see on histology and some autopsies? Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to know what the best anticoagulation strategy is. In general, we've kind of taken the approach um, that we've tried uh, for everything with intensive care is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and do what you know how to do, and then collect data um, and don't make changes without um, in informed, like if something's squarely within the research realm, don't just experiment on your patients. So we actually use the same anticoagulation strategy that we did pre-COVID, which is a 10A, anti-10A of 0.1 to 0.3 or a PTT of somewhere around 40 to 60. So not fully anticoagulated. One of the, the factors, uh, Janelle, that has been associated with increased uh, mortality in these COVID-19 patients that go on ECMO and has also been a common issue in ECMO is renal failure. Yet, obviously, um, a lot of patients who ended up in ECMO are going to receive renal replacement therapy. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, so uh, the nice thing about RRT and ECMO is that we can easily dialyze on the circuit. So kind of once you're on ECMO, dialysis isn't really that big of a deal. <laughs> um, and it seems like many patients have AKI, uh, whether that's a um, pre-renal ideology related to their sepsis or septic ATN or a cardiorenal problem with RV failure would be the most concerning one. Um, for prognosis, but it doesn't really kind of affect our decision making that much unless the patient has like pretty severe multi-organ failure and is maybe has some other pre-morbid um, or excuse me, like other comorbidities in advanced age. But otherwise, it doesn't really factor into our decision making. And just from, from a practical standpoint, um, these patients usually will have their cannulation catheters for ECMO and we will just do the uh, CRT hooked up to the ECMO um, circuit, right? 
Yeah, you can do that. And then um, with the, like the Prisma Flex tends to hook up pretty nicely to most circuits. Um, you just have to make sure that the pressure going to the circuit or to your um, CRT machine doesn't exceed its upper uh, pressure limit. And there's a couple of hacks that, um, that, 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 that you need to look into to uh, get a software update and stuff like that. But in general, um, dialyzing on the circuit is totally fine. And if you have any trouble, then inserting a, a separate dialysis line in the patient works. Excellent. And uh, regarding uh, patients with COVID-19 who are in ECMO, have any of these been proned? Is that something that people have, have even tried? Is there any point of doing? Obviously, the logistics might be complicated, but uh, is that something that's even on the radar right now? Ah, yes. And uh, there's going to be some uh, interesting data coming. Um, so stay tuned um, that I've just heard whispers of that I'm very excited to see. We have a lot of abs, not a lot, I should say, I think there's like four or five observational studies pre-COVID looking at um, uh, proning while on ECMO and seeing a mortality benefit signal. Um, and so that's, well, I guess certainly studies showing feasibility and safety and low risk low rates of complications um, some showing a, a mortality signal benefit some not um, it also really just depends on how people are using uh, proning and we don't really know how to use it goal directed so we've actually um, created a proning protocol for ECMO um, and we're thinking of using it if patients proning maybe everybody at least once and then if their compliance improves and continuing to dose with proning. The thing that can be confusing for us is that patients quote failed proning to even get on ECMO in the first place. Um, but it seems like some patients can still derive benefit but maybe they're just still too sick but they're better in the prone position. Um, and we see this a lot with patients so they just can't tolerate being supine so we kind of supinate them, cannulate them while they're satting 60 or 70%, and then you wish you could prone them again because it seems like their compliance get be gets better, gas exchange is better, it's not going to hurt anything, and pronings, we have, you know, our data tend to tell us that early and often proning probably improve mortality, so we don't want to stop that because we put them on ECMO. So it's, it's a big unknown, nobody knows to be very clear, but I'm pretty optimistic about proning on ECMO. And I think it also speaks to to the way we think of proning. Uh, for most clinicians, it's a PO2, FiO2, or oxygenation issue. But really, perhaps the benefits really are derived from how they protect the lung or minimize the amount of injury that we are causing on that ARDS lung. And that might be the the beauty of it. So it's intriguing for sure, and we'll we'll stay tuned for for more for more information as it comes out. I would like to talk a little bit about um, weaning from ECMO. So you, you you did mention, Janelle, that on average, the patients that have been placed on ECMO for respiratory failure from COVID will stay on the ventilator longer or on the ECMO longer and have longer ECMO runs. But how do you think about, okay, it's time to start weaning in those who are responding and how is this different or not in COVID-19 patients? Uh, and then we can talk about what do you do when they're not responding? But let's start with weaning those who seem to be responding. Yeah, so the general approach that I take to weaning that most centers do is once you have a patient who has um, uh, either if you're like improved enough compliance that you can safely um, execute 60 cc's per kilo with a plateau pressure less than 30, 
without a super high um, minute ventilation, so maybe something less than 15, um, and that you can maintain a PaO2 of uh, uh, greater than 80, and maybe your oxygen support is not super high on the vent, so plateau or PEEP is probably 10 or less, um, and the um, FiO2 is somewhere like 50% or less, then those are patients that are looking like, hmm, maybe they're gonna be headed towards um, towards, uh, towards weaning. So in general, these patients are gonna be satting 100% because they're on bypass and their lungs have recovered, and then they have good compliance. When you're seeing that, then um, working on weaning the sweep down to transition that ventilatory load from the membrane lung to the native lungs, and then getting an idea of, okay, what is my minute ventilation if I'm relying on the native lungs? And this COVID is no different than any other kind of ARDS, that dead space is the last thing to recover. And sometimes I need an extra week or two on ECMO just um, waiting for dead space to recovery just for, excuse me, to recover, whether that's like capillary microthrombosis or capillary destruction uh, with DAD and ARDS. Um, I, I, we all suspect it's kind of the same mechanisms. It's just, um, it's pretty severe with COVID and creates for um, like, a, 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 the oxygenation will recover, but we need some more time for dead space. And this isn't something that's evidence-based. This is something that the ECMO community has been kind of talking about, and I'd love to see something published here. Um, but anyway, weaning the sweep down until the sweep is around 0.5 liters per minute, and then you know that you've transitioned almost the entire ventilatory load of CO2 onto the native lungs, um, and then reducing the blood flow a little bit just to see how the patient tolerates that, because you're currently still on 100% oxygen support pretty much. If you have any, if the memory lung isn't apneic, it's probably completely oxygenating the blood. Um, and then if they, that looks okay, then maybe um, turn your FiO2 up on the ventilator to 100% just to kind of help um, with VQ matching in the native lungs and then disconnect the sweep gas. Um, and then make sure that you're not running low blood flows on VV ECMO for no reason, kind of hitting that sweet spot of not causing high blood stress uh, or sheer stress and hemolysis, um, but not clotting off your circuit. So I tend to run them around three liters per minute while we're quote off ECMO or off sweep gas and wait for the lines to become both very dark and then wean down your FiO2 pretty quickly and see how your patient does. And again, if they meet those parameters that I mentioned at the beginning, then they're probably gonna be ready for decannulation. Um, I think it's quite important to be patient with decannulation and make sure that your patient can um, appropriately ventilate because we've had a couple of patients where they look great for the first, you know, six hour blood gas. And then tomorrow morning while we've kept them off sweep, you know, their, their hypercarbic respiratory failure is actually pretty bad and they can't keep up. So that's just, you know, a testament to how long it can take for dead space to recover and they need to go back on ECMO until um, they can handle the CO2 load. What about tracheostomies in these patients with COVID-19? Are you yeah. doing trachs in these patients? It's hard to know what to do. So there's kind of a couple of different strategies and like how much do we utilize awake ECMO? So, you know, there's a lot of different thoughts. Some places basically they get a package of you get cannulated and trached. <laughs> um, some places say, well, I'm gonna have you cannulated and if it looks like you're not gonna have a shorter ECMO run, like a week or so, then I'm gonna just um, go ahead and trach you then. Um, so about a week or so seven days into the run, if it looks like the trajectory is going to be a long run, then trach. 
Um, other centers um, have been working more towards extubation on ECMO. Um, and this is an, highlighted, I think, really nicely with the Chicago cohort that published in JAMA, where they used the ProTech duo. And then they, so they, their patients were cannulated and intubated, I think for about like a week or a week and a half. Then they extubated. Then they did another week or like two weeks on ECMO. So they like finished out the run using the, the art of the mechan, uh, excuse me, the membrane lung instead of the native lungs to finish out the recovery. And um, this enables you to ambulate the patient and move them around more. Granted, this is much easier to do with the, um, a cannula that's not going to have problems with suction or recirculation or malposition when it's in the heart. Um, but it's purely preliminary data. I don't want to advocate that we all just jump and run and do this, but it is interesting um, to look at the different approaches. Currently what we do, um, and it's no better or worse than what anybody else does, is to look and see if the patient looks like they're gonna have a longer run, then we trach the patient, um, probably around a week or so. And if it looks like they're actually improving, it's gonna be a short run, then we don't. We work towards extubation, had a number of patients do just fine extubated. Excellent. Extubated after decannulation. We haven't really been extubating on ECMO. Okay, and that's something that obviously might be also related to the nature of the respiratory disease versus somebody who may be on VA ECMO for cardiopulmonary collapse, which I've seen people extubated and talking while on ECMO, which like oh, you said, yeah. is a different situation. I, I, yeah. yeah, I know that I've been talking mostly about VV for COVID, but almost every single one of my VA patients is extubated. Okay. What about stopping ECMO for futility? or in COVID patients. So at what point do you say, well, this is really not getting better and how does that really happen? And uh, just your thoughts. Yeah, this is really hard. So um, whereas in the past, we used to think that uh, fibrotic changes on CT uh, portend a terrible prognosis and it was time to move for comfort measures only. Incredible places like Michigan said, ah, let's see what happens if we leave you on ECMO for a really long time. And the regenerative capabilities of the lung are very poorly understood. And it's surprising that lungs can actually recover. Um, so we really don't have a great test of any kind to know when is it completely futile. But I mean, it's also, it's a really, it's tough. I mean, this is not a comfortable way to live a lot of the time with these patients, they go through a lot and you're trying to figure out, okay, what is the likelihood that there's light at the other end of this tunnel? What is the likelihood that I'm actually going to be able to send you back to a quality of life that you find acceptable? And when I feel like that is becoming vanishingly um, uh, small opportunity to get you there, then maybe that's time to talk about switching to comfort measures only. I really think with ECMO, it's important to either be 100% in or don't do it. I think it's really not a great place to be in the middle because then you have a self-fulfilling prophecy of um, a poor outcome, right? And then you're just utilizing resources and there's emotional stress as you basically kind of run a patient with maybe non-escalation, you know, kind of stuff. Um, like I'm not gonna escalate the pressors, we're not gonna start dialysis, but we're gonna keep them on ECMO. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because um, you got to either be all in with ECMO or, you know, switch and switch to comfort care only, um, I think makes the most sense. And it's really, really important that we communicate clearly with our families at the beginning of the ECMO run 
what ECMO can do and more importantly, what it can't do. And really um, at regular intervals, reassess the progress that the patient is making um, and or lack thereof. And when we think that we've met a point of probably no return, um, then being honest with ourselves about that. Yeah. And I think it, it's, it's very important, obviously, like, like you mentioned, the ongoing conversations and being very clear with family in terms of goals and what, what, what's, what's possible and what's not. It's also interesting to me that when I review the, the registry data, that uh, the vast majority of patients who die on ECMO seem to die off ECMO. So in terms of a lot of patients um, seem to die after uh, ECMO is stopped. And obviously, those I presume are the cases you're talking about where they really don't think that there's much more to, to offer. Is that correct? Or they're dying, I guess, on ECMO so that they aren't being weaned and then die later. It's that they die um, because we transitioned to comfort care on ECMO. So either the patient has terrible multi-organ failure and is refractory spiraling shock that you can't rescue. And um, this isn't a cardiogenic shock that's rescuable with a VAV configuration, for example. Um, that's probably, that probably makes sense. Um, a devastating ne central neurologic uh, injury, like a really bad bleed with a, a bad neurologic prognosis, that's another probably reason to stop. Um, and then a patient who say has a really, really long run um, is not a lung transplant candidate and is so severely deconditioned um, and there's no hope for enough native lung recovery to be able to aid in some, like you just can't get them, they have to stay paralyzed and sedated. That's really not a sustainable solution. And um, it's, you know, even then, even if you could wait out a long time with months on ECMO, this person's not going to have an acceptable quality of life if they want any degree of independence, if they have to stay paralyzed and sedated for weeks, that's just not reasonable. Excellent. So, I would like to, to talk a little bit, if you could, uh, Janelle, on complications related to ECMO, but are there any specific complications that you think are most relevant for the COVID-19 patients? And just maybe some advice on them before we, we move on to the closing parts of the of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the complications that we see with ECMO in general tend to be around bleeding and clotting, and that's what makes ECMO different than the mechanical ventilator. Um, so I think it's, it's hard to know what to do. Some centers would really pretty strongly advocate for full anticoagulation. Other centers have seen really devastating uh, intracranial hemorrhage or retroperitoneal bleed with massive transfusion. I've seen all of these. Um, and so it's hard to know what the risk benefit ratio is. Um, but I think it's important for each center to collect their own data, whether it's QI or to submit to a registry so that we can sort out what the best practice is. Another one that we see is uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, um, actually pretty decently high um, co-infection or super-infection rates and something that you know we've all known about influenza and maybe are learning more that COVID um, will have a bacterial infection. And I also kind of wonder, and this is also me just being speculative, of if the patients who end up requiring ECMO are the ones with a bacterial infection, that's why they end up getting so severe. I don't know. Um, but remaining very vigilant for that and also knowing that the pulmonary toilet is often subpar when you have a deeply sedated patient and uh, we don't know the role of toilet bronchoscopy. We don't have great, uh, great data for that in the medical um, and medical intensive care patients in general, but maybe, maybe we should be encouraging more cough and uh, secretion clearance. We really, we just don't know. Excellent. So, like we were talking at, at, before we started recording and throughout the podcast, 
the vast majority of intensivists who listen to the podcast probably are not doing ECMO for COVID-19 in their facilities, but obviously have had cases where they're thinking, should this patient be referred to an ECMO center? Uh, we talked about the indications. We talked about some of the timing issues. But I think this is a topic that is so important for our listeners that I would like to kind of revisit and, and, and emphasize. And maybe if you could just give us, from your perspective, Janelle, some advice for non-ECMO centers on how to interact and engage with a patient uh, who might benefit from ECMO with an ECMO center. What are some of the things that you recommend highly? Wonderful. Yeah, I, I think the main thing is, is to not accept injurious ventilator settings. So if you're unable to maintain a, um, you know, like a, if you're using an esophageal balloon, a transpulmonary pressure less than 25 or 20, um, or a plateau pressure less than 30, um, I would definitely reach out because I think that's the number one thing that we see is a patient's had a plateau pressure for four, of 45 for a couple of days, um, and then that that outcome is probably going to be significantly worse. Um, and calling early, I think, makes sense. When the patient's intubated and they're not doing well, call your ECMO center and put them on the radar and say, hey, you know, I just want this person on your radar, I'm curious about your capacity, see if you're the right destination, because we've also, you know, a lot of ECMO centers are working together to try to help referring centers not have to shop their patient around or call a bunch of places. We're trying really hard to coordinate that for everyone. Um, but the earlier that we have someone on the radar, then we know, or at least collectively, for example, in the Pacific Northwest, we have an ECMO collaborative and we know where the patients are at, at other centers and we're getting an idea of where are they going to go next? Where's the next patient going to go and, and know about the really good candidates that are quite sick. Um, and then we can also plan extraction at the right time. We don't want to, I mean, transport is a really high risk time for a patient and you don't want to unnecessarily transport a patient if they can be managed really well where they are. And then also reaching out to an ECMO center just to, you know, you can, we can talk about the, 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 the strategy for ARDS management together. I think it's always really nice just to like talk through things together and, um, and have like a nice plan and then think through the what ifs and the if thens and then the, the criteria for pulling the trigger on ECMO, I think is really, is really quite helpful. So I think the early calls, not accepting injurious um, uh, ventilator settings. Um, and uh, like, I think it, you can also, if you're not sure if a patient has a contraindication, just call. Cause I think sometimes people think that, oh, this person's maybe too sick or too old or too whatever, but just give us a call and um, then we can sort through and, and that like whether or not that patient uh, is a good candidate. And also I will say that, you know, exclusion criteria are the things that are going to uh, widen and narrow based on capacity in general. The inclusion criteria won't change, but if we only have one circuit left, we're going to try to pick the patients who are most likely to survive. So maybe if a patient was excluded for comorbidities or age three weeks ago, maybe our circuits opened up and now we're going to take a patient with that, with those characteristics. So I think always calling really helps erring on the side of calling and not feeling bad if you call and it's a person that isn't a candidate. It, it's, it's always, I think every ECMO center really is happy to hear about who's out there. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think like in many other um, issues in life, when in doubt, call and ask. And early is better than late, it sounds like, would be the, the summary, right? <laughs> yep, that sounds good. <laughs> so last question on ECMO. I know you're passionate about education. 
any resources that you want to share and we can link them on the on the podcast notes for ECMO education in general? Yeah, so um, I can talk about some upcoming things. So um, with ELSO, uh, we have adult courses that are virtual. So those there's a couple of them coming up for mobile ECMO and for adult management. And we have a neonatal and peds course. So if you go to the ELSO uh, website, you can uh, see how to register for those courses. Um, we're also in the in the uh, in the middle of creating our uh, online uh, curriculum for ELSO, and our idea in the future is for this to be an asynchronous curriculum that you have access to, and then um, having ELSO um, endorsed courses at various ECMO centers or ELSO centers for the in-person component. Once we can get back to safely doing that, um, and then I think. Uh, the other uh, thing that there's also an ECMO 101, which is a, a kind of a introductory ECMO course on the ELSO web pay, uh, website um, to uh, just to go through. It, it's actually not just an introductory course. It's actually in a, a bit of great detail, um, but that's something that's free and open access and available to you at any time. Um, and then, so I think that the as, as our ECMO community tries to get back together. Um, in the meantime, virtual conferences. So Euro ELSO is coming up in May and then the ELSO conference in September. There's a lot of really incredible lectures and we all really look forward to exchanging ideas um, for what's next with ECMO and how to stay current in a field that's rapidly changing. Excellent. So Janelle, really enjoy the conversation on ECMO and COVID-19. There's a lot more, I'm sure, that we can dissect in the future and a lot to come, which is exciting. We'd like to close the podcast with some questions that are unrelated to the clinical topic. Would that be okay? Sure. So the first question relates to books and what book or books have influenced you the most or what book have you gifted most often to others? You know, and this is something that I wish that I, I feel like I end up <laughs> reading so much about ECMO and that's probably like the lamest answer ever, but <laughs> whenever I do get a chance to read is, 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 um, is it's pretty few and far between. Um, but I think that for me personally, like um, being able to read something that's um, like sort of just fun and escapism and to think about something that has to do with magic or fantasy or something like that is really nice to sort of um, to, to escape our world and to think about things that are, I don't know, um, wondrous. So I don't know. I, I feel like I don't even remember the names of the books that I read. It's just something to be able to mindlessly think about that's, that's nice. And I don't tend to read a lot of nonfiction unless it has to do with ECMO, to be totally honest, to confess. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and there is, there is al always a, an ELSO, a textbook that's updated regularly that for people who want to yeah. learn more is available and, and also very, very interesting, correct? The ELSO Red Book is a really wonderful textbook. And then also coming soon, um, we are publishing an eCPR book. Um, with under the leadership of Zach Shiner um, from San Diego. So that's going to be really useful for resuscitative ECMO. Well, it's not just eCPR, but any like emergent deployment of ECMO. Excellent. Second question relates to beliefs. What do you believe to be true in medicine or life that most other people don't believe or at least don't act like they believe it? Um, I mean, 
a truth in medicine or life, I think sometimes um, we don't recognize how grass, how green the grass is right where we're standing. And I think it's really important, especially in a time of so much stress, um, to be able to think about the things that are going well and the things that we're thankful for. And just take those little moments every day as we work through this marathon and it's really hard for us in intensive care, I think. Um, but to just take a moment and be thankful and reflect on what we have that's working and whether that's the little victories for your patients at work or your personal victories at home, but to really enable yourself to celebrate them when it's hard to celebrate too many things right now. I think that's a, a great, a great uh, insight, and and I love it how you 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 said it that the grass being green where you are, as opposed to the usual uh, framing of the grass is not greener on the other side, which is something that I've seen a lot throughout ICUs around the country right now, people leaving or some of our colleagues in nursing and RT becoming traveler nurses and really thinking it's going to be better elsewhere, and then they go and find that actually. There was a lot of green where, where they were before. But I think that also in terms of focusing on what's around us, what's good around us, and what we should be grateful for, uh, super important with this pandemic, but I think true for no matter what's going on in our lives. And I think that's a great insight, Janelle. Thanks. <laughs> the last question is, what would you want every intensivist who's listening to us to know? Yeah, I think the main, the thing, um, it's totally un -ECMO, not ECMO related, but has to do with what we were just talking about is probably the most important thing I think is to make your working environment inspiring and fun. It's It can be so tiring and um, making everyone really recognize the impact that they have so they understand, oh, this is why we do what we do. Um, and this is why we sacrifice so much. When we get to see our patients get better and see them go home and recognize the good saves and um, to inspire the people on our team, um, I think that that really, really helps us to prevent burnout. And burnout is probably one of the biggest problems that we face in healthcare. Um, and so I think that, I just think of that as the intensivist, we have that unique opportunity to lead our team and to find little ways to make work fun and to make everyone on the team feel really appreciated, I think goes so much farther than we ever really realize. And I agree 100%. And it's very interesting because a lot of the things you mentioned are deliberate practices that can make a difference, right? So finding joy in what we do on a daily basis, but also reconnecting with purpose. And a lot of people have studied this outside of medicine, but it really seems that when you think of your job, not in terms of the tasks you do on a daily basis, but the people's life that you change on a daily basis, whether that be our patients, the people we teach, the people that we help be their best selves at work in our team, it really transforms the way you feel about your job. And, and I think that is very, very important since we spend so much time working and so much time trying to get where we are today. Yeah, it makes the hard work worth it. We can change the world, one patient at a time maybe. <laughs> Excellent. Janelle, it was a true pleasure to talk with you today. I definitely hope that we can uh, see each other in person soon and uh, definitely will keep you on the radar as these new exciting data come up, maybe post-COVID. We'll have a lot more to talk about ECMO and other aspects of critical care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound Critical Care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.